Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Listen and grow as Dell questions the status quo, encourages you to think differently, and empowers you to make a better life. Get ready as Dell challenges core beliefs, seeks the truth, and reveals the roadmap to the lifestyle you really want. And now your host, multi-millionaire, national award-winning investor, CEO and founder of Lifestyles Unlimited, Del Wamsley. Welcome to the Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Del Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom. My friends, today I'm going to tackle uh, a topic that I'm going to I'm going to name it. We're going to call it the four most common lies in real estate investing. So, well, that doesn't sound very positive. Um, actually, it's not as negative as it sounds uh, if you understand it. But if you don't understand it, then you could get caught up in it and uh, really have some problems with it. So today I want to cover these four different lies. They're very common. I mean, you hear it all the time. The first lie I want to start with is that flipping and wholesaling is real estate investing. Real estate investing is a completely different thing than flipping and wholesaling. I saw this, I was stimulated to cover this topic because I saw a guy on Facebook and um, he's on my, he's got onto my friends list somehow and I don't really care, uh, but he's putting out all these things about wholesaling and, and he's got a system and he's got a group of people. And uh, it was funny because they they were saying, you know, we always hear that this isn't real estate investing and that you're not going to get rich by wholesaling and flipping and, you know, you're rich. And, they, and they're talking about the guy. And you can see the guy, he's there, he's got on his best duds, he's you know, dressing himself up, got his hair slicked back with some grease and stuff to make himself look, uh, you know, like he's somebody important. And uh, he's got a group of people in front of him, which, you know, it doesn't matter. In being a teacher, in many cases, you just have to be one step ahead of the students is all you really have to be. And so in that situation, he's sitting there with a bunch of poor and broke people. And that's what they were saying was that wholesalers are just a bunch of poor, broke people with bad credit that can't go out and buy real estate. So they start wholesaling and flipping real estate. And that, that's what the conversation came up. And he's going, ha, oh, ha, ha, that's funny. I'm rich. I'm successful, blah, blah, blah. And the guys then uh, that were his sycophants, you know, came back and said, yeah, I'd like to be as poor and broke as you are. That's poor people talk, speaking about poor people. Let's get into the facts behind it. Flipping and wholesaling, what's the difference? Wholesaling is where you go out and you find something that's for sale, a property, that someone's willing to sell at a price that you think you can make some money on. You get it under contract, and then you turn around and you sell the contract to somebody else. So you don't even take ownership of the property when wholesaling is done correctly. You find the deal, and you sell it to somebody else, and you take a cut in between. And you're not taking a real estate agency fee cut. You're just taking a cut. You're saying, okay, I can buy this house. It's a $200,000 house, and... It needs, let's say, fifty thousand in rehab, so I it would be worth about one hundred fifty thousand. But I can buy it for one hundred twenty. So I'm going to go buy it, put it in contract for one hundred twenty. 
Then I'm going to go find somebody that's willing to buy it for 150 and I'm going to sell it and make $30,000. And those are some good numbers. I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating the, the numbers, but I want it to look as good as I possibly can. And then I turn around and sell that contract to somebody else. But remember, if it needs 50000 rehab, you can't sell it to somebody for 150 because they don't make any money. Then you've got to sell it to them. If you bought it for 120 maybe you sell it for 130 And then there's 20000 left in it for them to be able to make, and you take 10000 off the top just for finding the deal. So nothing unfair about that. There's nothing unrealistic about that um, except this. What you did was not real estate investing. You didn't invest any money. You don't own any real estate. You are a wholesaler. That's like a used car salesman. And by the way, the government sees it that way, too. And they tax you not like we get taxed in real estate investing, which is pretty much, if done correctly, tax-free. But they tax you as it is a business. So you're paying income tax, earned income tax on that income. Now, depending on how you have it set up, you really should be paying Social Security and Medicare also because it's really employment. It's really a job. So if this guy's got a bunch of guys working for him, wholesaling all this stuff, he's got to be claiming that they're independent contractors. Otherwise, he'd have to be paying their Social Security and Medicare along with whatever fees they pay these guys for finding him the deals. And the way it appeared from what I could see from the pictures, he's got a room of people. He's got working on the phones, you know, tracking these deals down. And then he sells them. They sell them to him and he sells them to somebody else. And he pays them a fee and he takes a cut and on they go. And that's a business. And that means you should be paying Social Security and Medicare also. Whether or not he does is up to him. He can get away with it until he doesn't, <laughs> and eventually he'll get caught. And like every other poor, broke, bad credit person, he'll end up poorer and broker and in jail or in jail because he didn't pay his Social Security and Medicare taxes on what was considered earned income, right? Now, the contract labor people, uh, whether or not they're considered contract labor is another whole different story. Um but it has to do with, do they do what you tell them to do or do they do what they want to do? Do they bring their own tools? Can they work whenever they want, et cetera, et cetera. So if this gets somebody working for you out of their home, they work only whenever they want. They just do whatever they want to do. They use their own tools to do it. That is pretty much contract labor and more so than um, employment. But you organizing all that, being the, the center of attention, what you're doing is definitely earned income. It's a business, Right. And you're not paying your business taxes. So eventually this guy, as smart as he thinks he is, unless he's paying his business taxes, is going to eventually have some problems. That's not the real point I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make, he's not a real estate investor. In no way, shape, or form is he a real estate investor. He is an outvestor. He's taking money out of the system for doing work. Now, let's talk about flipping. Flipping is a little bit different. Flipping is where you buy a house. You renovate it and you sell it. And again, this, even though it is investing to some degree, is still a job. The problem with that is neither one of the two create any long-term wealth. Number two, pro forma is a lie. What is pro forma? A long time ago, banks wanted to see what the business was doing to determine its value. 
So you would look at something called a T12, trailing 12-month financial statement, and they'd see what the business has done over the last one or two years, and that's how they determine the value, what it has proven it can do. As times got better and better and better, and they started having people willing to pay more and more and more, they found that they could change the financial numbers to the bank by just going with shorter and shorter terms. So in other words, instead of 24 months, hey, over the last 24 months, we've really increased the rent. So we don't want to show you 24 months ago that it's irrelevant. It's not where it's at right now. So 12 months is more relevant. And so banks started taking 12 months only and leaving the second year behind. Then the same thing happened again, and value started going up pretty quickly. And Income started going up pretty quickly. It said, look, whatever happened 12 months ago is irrelevant. Let's just look at the last six months. And so banks started taking the last six months. But then they needed a year or two's worth of financials. So they'd say, okay, show us what you've done in the last six months, but tell us what you're going to do in the next six months and put that together and create a trailing six and a future six to 12 months. Tell us what you do in the next year. And that is what they call pro forma. If we perform the way we believe we can, pro forma, we will be at this set of numbers. And so it all ended and changed when banks started taking pro forma to make loans. It's utterly ridiculous, the concept that you can tell somebody what you're going to do. Now, in the past, when I was doing this on a regular basis, I got pretty good at being able to project where I could be. The reason I could do that, and this is the difference now, you need to get your hands around this if you're listening to me carefully uh, to be an investor. I would own a property on one side of the street that was exactly the same age as a property on the other side of the street, and I had $500 a month rents, and the guy across the street had $400 a month rents. And I knew if I bought that property, I could pro forma it within one year to be up to where my numbers were at. Period. That was simple. I knew I could. That pro forma was a logical pro forma. It had basis. Well, what started happening was is that all these deals where they were old and, and done, um, were started looking at them from the point of view, well, what could we raise the rents because the market is going up? Not because we can bring it from below market to market, but to bring it at market to higher market. And in this scenario, what happened is the pro forma started to be basing on being based on air. Now, the original assumption behind it was, okay, the market right now is going up at, you know, about 5% a month in rent increases or 5% a year rent increases. So we can go ahead and book in our pro forma to be 5% higher. But when rent started going up and up and up and up very, very radically, you're seeing rent increases of 10%, double digit rent increases, sometimes as high as 15% in the best markets. Then they started performing that those kinds of rent increases in to the selling numbers. And so you're understanding, you're now looking at a deal where they're trying to sell it to you, the seller. This isn't even the bank anymore. This just the seller is saying, look, this property produces X. It, and the numbers it produces makes it worth a million dollars. But if you were to make these changes, if you spent the money, the time, the trouble, the hassle, and took the risk that you could make these changes, then it'd be worth a million and a half. And so I'm going to sell it to you as being worth a million and a half. Your goal then is to take it from a million and a half and 
put some more potential to it and sell it to somebody else for $2 million who overpays it. I sell it to you too high, you sell it to the next guy too high. And that became lie number two, that people are buying real estate that is not worth what they're paying for it, period. I said to you in rule number one, never lose money. I've never lost money in real estate. The reason? Because I don't pay the price they want me to pay. If they want more than what it's truly worth, I won't pay it. If they want what it's truly worth, I will pay it in a second. Now, if they want less than what it's truly worth, then I will buy it instantly, throw money at it, hard earnest money, lock in the deal, you know, promise to do it no matter what, you know, give away my first child type thing. But if I can buy it just for what it's worth, I will buy it. Now, when you get to deals you like and say, I really want that property, now you're willing to go, you know what? I might go 5% higher than what it's worth simply because I want it. It's a premium because I want something, not a premium because your pro forma said it's worth 10% or 15% more. I'll give you a premium because I want the property. And I've run into a couple of offers like this recently where I wanted the property so bad and they were still, they had come down from their, their pro formas and they know they can't get what they want. I looked at one deal, you know, where they wanted like, you know, 60 and a half million dollars, 65 million, something like that. And by the time I got in there, you know, the numbers were down around 58 million, something along those lines. Uh, and, that was way less than what they originally had proformed it out to be. But the bank said, no, with the financing today, that won't even, you can't finance that at that price. And so they made them drop it down. But if you looked at it, it was still a 5 or 10% pro forma from where it was at right now, maybe even 15%. I think the occupancy was like 80%, and they're saying it was going to be 95%. So it was a 15% increase pro forma. And, of course, it just didn't make sense. We'll be right back with the Dell Wamsley Radio Show and the four most common lies in real estate. Teaching you with a roadmap to creating the lifestyle you really want. Keep listening. The Dell Wamsley Radio Show returns in moments. Lifestyles Unlimited members share their stories and strategies for success at case study events. If you got laid off tomorrow, what would you do? Would you have to be working at McDonald's or wait to try and find another job with the downsizing the economy? Kept on coming to meetings even with David Fisher online and stuff like that, but still we just like, we need to make the jump. So we kept praying for time to get this job done, to, to be able to find the properties. How do we find the properties? How do you find the time? And God answered our prayers and he got downsized from his corporate job. But they didn't buy just one house, right? No, they did not. You're rehabbing house number nine. Right now. nine. Wow. So every month, the cash flow is $3,200. Okay, the equity of all the houses is up to 280000 Join us this month and learn from people just like you. Check in person and online dates at lukstudy.com. Once again, that's lukstudy.com. 
You're hearing the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Want more life-changing knowledge? Access our podcast and listen on demand at lifestylesunlimited.com under the radio tab. Now your host, Dell Wamsley. Welcome back to Dell Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Dell Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom today. Uh, we are hitting uh, four most common lies in real estate investing. And as we went to break, we were talking about pro forma and how brokers have just built in now this lie that you should buy a piece of real estate and pay more than what it's actually worth. And banks are financing it based on you buying it more than what it's actually worth. Does all this have to come to an end? I don't know. I've been around two giant failures of our system so far, two recessions, so to speak, one in uh, back in 87 and one in 2008, and I made money in both of them. So I hope it does, but it may not. I still make money even when it doesn't. The point I'm making to you is you've got to be wise enough to understand these guys are selling you this stuff and that the brokers are lying to you. And they're lying to you because that's their job to lie to you. They get paid to lie to you. Say, well, why would a broker do that, Dell? Because if he doesn't or she doesn't do that, they can't get the listing. Seller's not going to give a listing to a broker that won't lie for them. Say, well, man, isn't it against the law to lie? There's nothing against the law about lying when you're selling stuff. It's buyer beware out there in real estate, right? Buyer beware. Now, we'll move on to the third lie, and that is you marry the property you're buying, but you only are dating the financing that you're putting on it. In the past, there was relevance to this, you know. So right now, interest rates are high. You buy something now, you say, well, I can buy it now at high interest rates because I'll just refinance it when the interest rates come back down. Well, that's the way it used to work, but it doesn't work that way any longer. Now what they've done is they've changed the way you get out of loans. It used to be you could buy a 30-year mortgage on a house, and you could get out of it anytime you wanted to refinance it. There was no prepayment penalty on the loan, and if so, it was very minor. Now, in fact, you could even let someone assume the loan. You could give the loan away and let somebody else take it doesn't happen like that anymore. Now what happens is, is that you get into a loan and there's a prepayment penalty. Um, they're trying to keep you in that loan because they're making money off of it because they made upfront money on it. And if they make upfront money on it, the guy who's buying it from them, because uh, they don't keep their own mortgages, they sell these mortgages, uh, the guy buying them wants to know that there's going to be income coming in for some period of time. And so they have two kinds of prepayment penalties. The standard prepayment penalty, which isn't that bad. So, for instance, you had a three-year loan. There would be a 3% penalty if you got out the first year, a 2% if you got out the second year, and a 1% if you got out during the third year. And by the time the third year was over, you could get out for free within the last 90 days, 120 days, whatever it is, set up on the loan. If you had a five-year loan, it would usually be a 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. If you had a seven-year loan, it might be a 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then you had two years that you could get out for free type of deal. But nowadays, they've got something completely different. And this has been around for a while, but it's really prevalent now, and that's called defeasance. 
And what defeasance is basically saying, and this is a very watered-down convolution of it, defeasance is saying, I'm going to lend you the money, and right now it's 6% interest. I expect to get paid that 6% interest for whatever term of that loan it was. If it's a 10-year loan, a 7-year loan, or a 5-year loan, whatever it is, I'm going to get paid that 6% interest. Now, if you want to pay me off, you have to go find bonds that earn 6%. And you have to take my money and you have to go buy bonds that will replace my loan to you so that if I'm earning 6% of my money after you pay me off, I'll still be earning 6% of my money through these bonds. But the bottom line is, is that if you want to get out of that loan, you have to go find a place to put their money. So if the interest rate is high, 6%, and you go out there to try to find bonds to cover that, those are going to be very expensive bonds. Now, if, so to speak, interest rates would go down, they don't want to get out of a 6% loan to go into a 2% bond. So now you may have to pay by double the bonds. Let's say I got a 6% loan. And bonds are paying, you know, 3%. Well, to cover that 6%, I have to buy twice as much bonds as what I'm paying you off. Doesn't make any sense to do it, put it that way. So with this defeasance stuff, right, um, you're pretty much locked into that loan. So that old saying of, well, you know, I'm, I'm buying the property for life, but I'm dating the loan Eh, not quite the same. You got to think of it. Well, I'm dating the loan with a divorce clause or a prenuptial, uh, you know, divorce agreement where, you know, it's common law married. <laughs> In other words, we're tied together whether we think we are or not. That loan just doesn't come off that property as easy as you thought it would come off there. And I see a lot of people get stuck in that. You know, sometimes a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. You need all of the knowledge. You need the support, the backup, the money, the finance, the credit, the operational systems to make these things work. And when you're in a group like ours, you've got access to all that information, all of those people and those that money and, the, you know, just it's all there in this little group that you can go to and find somebody who could help you in these situations. Here we are at number four. Number four most common lie out there in the marketplace and definitely on the Internet right now is um, more is better. Larger the real estate deal, the better the deal. Uh, this is absolutely not true. Uh, Grant Cardone uh, is the guy who started this lie, and I'm willing to call him out on it uh, in public. So that's how much I don't fear a lawsuit against this guy. Uh, he, he's just lying to people, period. Why does he say that more is better? Because the larger his syndication is, the more, the larger his fee is for making the deal get done. The larger the property makes from selling the contract to the syndication, the larger the management fee his management company makes, um, the more assets he can claim in his name to brag about how wealthy he is. These are all his reasons to lie. So what is the truth behind the lie? Well, there is such thing as economics of scale. When you own a multifamily property, you can only afford to have on-site management of any kind 
once you get to about 50 units. If you have under that, having an on-site manager is a very expensive part, but you probably will still have one. You'll just have to have a part-time one, maybe somebody that lives on-site to do it. About 50 units and up, you can start having a full-time manager. Maintenance guy, same thing. You can't afford to have a full-time maintenance guy under 50 units. Now, from 50 to 100 units, you can run all of that, all the way up to 100 units with one manager. You can have one full-time maintenance guy. This is called the economics of scale in the apartment industry. It takes one maintenance man and one manager, one inside person, one outside person, as they call them, uh, per 100 units. So when you go anywhere from 50 to 100, your economics of scale is getting better. You're getting more and more and more work done with the same number of people. Now, when you go over 100 units, you're getting more and more work done with the same number of people, but you're starting to burn your people out. So somewhere between 100 and 150 units, you need to pick up a second person, a part-time person. Um, I was able to do that in my properties. Uh, when I had 132 units, I had two people, uh, one full-time person and one part-time person inside in the office. Actually, you know, the manager worked Monday through Friday. The assistant manager worked, uh, I believe it was Wednesday through Sunday. So it was two full-time people. And they ran two apartment complexes. One was 64, one was 68. So we had the economics of scale there of being able to have two people that could let somebody take two days off and still work if we needed to. Um, I could have ran it with a part-time. I could have had an assistant. And that assistant could work three days a week or four days a week. And that would have worked fine. I had two full-time maintenance guys because I had two different properties. I wanted one of them to specialize in each property. But when there was an overload, I could pull one to the other side or the other side back and forth. But it was very good to have two people, and that's the benefit of having over the 100 units. I could afford to have that second maintenance guy. Now, once you get up to 200 people, 200 units, let's say two 100-unit apartment complexes or one 200-unit apartment complex. Now you can afford, that's your maximum use of two people in and two people out. Two managers, you know, one manager, one assistant manager, one manager, one leasing agent, the way it's usually set up, and one full-blown maintenance man, AC certified maintenance guy, and then another guy that is not quite as qualified uh, but can do just about everything else. And so you get two guys. You might even, at 200 units, pick up a third person outside called a porter, which is basically um, walks around, cleans up the property, does labor-type work. Hey, take all the paint over to there for us. Uh, sit here and watch this air conditioner while the Freon goes in it so nobody steals the Freon or the air conditioner. Um, clean the office for us, you know, clean the bathrooms, clean the pool, do all the stuff. You know, just kind of laborious labor-type, minimum-wage-type work. Uh, at, at that point. Now, when you get over 200 units, you get back into that, you're overstressing your staff again. So from 200 to 250, you start thinking about picking up part-time people to fill those that extra workload. At some point, around 300 units, where it's more than one property, because you can have 300 units and have a manager, an assistant manager, and a leasing agent. There's, remember, Per 100 units, you pick up one body. But when you go to the part where you have multiple locations, I had a 68 unit, a 88 unit, and a 108. Let's see, it was a 64, 68, and an 88. And those three properties were within a couple blocks of each other. And so at that point, I had managers 
in I had two of them together and one manager and the other old property down the street, the larger property had a manager. And then my third person was a supervisor, which could work wherever that person wanted to work. If they needed help over here, they needed help over here. But they were the ones that now became able to hire and fire and train these managers underneath of them. So they were a glorified manager slash supervisor that ran these properties. That's it. That's the economics of scale. Now, any more economics of scale than that only works for management companies. It doesn't do you any good at all. So a management company wants to have an accounting department, a management company wants to have um, uh, supervisory staff, they want to have uh, personnel staff, they want, they want all these specialty trades within their company. They're going to want as many units as they possibly can so they can bill all that stuff out. That doesn't make you any more money. That is overkill. And that's where the profits start to go down. The larger the property, the less profitable it is. Take my word for this. The larger the property, the less profitable it is. I will be willing to fight that term with just about anybody because it just doesn't pay to have massive management company oversight. The only place I've seen massive management company oversight actually pay for itself is in the world where you can't get insurance and they can get you insurance. So they can save you some bucks on insurance, maybe by getting you into an insurance pool. Um, and maybe there's some other things they can buy at bulk that you can't get in bulk. But really, it doesn't work. And don't let Grant Cardone tell you it does. The bottom line is, the smaller the property, the faster I can turn the property, the more profit I can make with the property, and the better off you'll be. Remember this always, it's not just money. There's lifestyle involved also. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Want more of Dell's unconventional wisdom? Go to lifestylesunlimited.com and click the radio tab. Listen to past shows, hear podcasts on demand, and find out how you can change your life today. The Dell Wamsley Radio Show is part of the Lifestyles Unlimited Radio Network. The information and opinions you hear on the Del Wamsley Radio Show are those of the host, Del Wamsley, his guests, and his callers, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this station, its affiliates, its management, or advertisers. The Del Wamsley Show is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult a professional regarding your personal investment needs. Nothing presented on the Del Wamsley Show constitutes an endorsement, recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or security.